0: Listeners, it is, I'm going to call it Nobel Prize week here on The Learning Curve. I am here with the fantastic Mr. Gerard Robinson, who, Gerard, did you win the Nobel Prize this weekend?
1: Not yet, but my time will come.
0: Next year, yeah, I I was thinking I might be next year. No, I'm really excited because you know who did? Probably you read that Joshua Angrist of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, also known as MIT, has won the Nobel Prize in Economics, for his research, which includes research on charter school effectiveness, so Angrist I did not know that. Oh, see, I'm super excited about this because you know, well, you and I are both charter school nerds, yeah. and a few years ago, with Pioneer Institute, I published a book about charter schools in Massachusetts, and Angrist and his team are heavily cited throughout that book because they studied Boston charter schools in particular, which they found to be very effective. Can you imagine, Gerard? They actually found these schools to be incredibly effective. And it's just really feels great for him and his team, such great team of researchers. For Angrist, who has, you know, and his research goes far beyond charter schools. But his game is really like finding natural experiments. Charter schools are among them, right? They provide a randomized control trial right there without having to actually <laughs> separate kids into groups because they separate themselves. And the whole idea being that you can compare kids who applied to charter school lotteries and did not get in, and kids who applied to charter school lotteries and did get in, and you've got a similarly motivated group, hence natural experiment. And um, I just have to share with you, Gerard, that I have memories of folks who don't like charter schools so much, saying to me after reading my books or reading my papers, I don't know, this research that you cite, it can't be very high quality. And I'm thinking, well, okay, now, now you've got a Nobel prize winner, so how's that for h- high quality? So. That's, it's gotta be on the learning curve. It is, here we are, we're prize week, Gerard. So what's on your, that's not even my story of the week, by the way, just the intro because I'm so excited. What are you thinking?
1: Well, you actually set me up well because my uh, article of the week is about economic education and K-12 education, imagine that.
0: See, I didn't even mean to, we didn't even plan it. So my story
1: is from Michelle Fox and she is with CNBC and it's from October 11th, and the title is to raise successful children, teach them about economics, education experts say. So I grew up in a home where we did not talk a lot about money, whether it was personal finance or whether it was how to save, how to use a credit card. We just did not do so. And we come to find out, I'm not radically different from a lot of families today. And so the author basically said, listen, if we expect for our children to become responsible handlers of power, which includes personal finance and economics, guess what? They should learn something about economics. And she reminds us that if we don't think we have an economics problem or a personal finance problem, just take a look mm-hmm. at student loan debt, you know, which is yeah. 1.6 trillion, take a look at credit card debt. And so in previous, you know, several years, in fact. States have actually made a push to try and talk a lot about financial literacy. And that led to April becoming Financial Literacy Month. Well, we're proud to find out that October this month marked the first ever National Economic Education Month. And this is something that's been supported by Nan Wargson, who is the president and CEO of the Council of Economic Education. And she's a member of CNBC's Invest in Financial Wellness Council. And what she said is that people have to start paying attention to how to look at societal issues through the lens of economics. Whether that's looking at COVID, whether it's looking at finance, or even education, how we fund it, that economics matters a lot. Well, in order for that to take place, we had to take a look and really prove to people that economics was something we need to study. Because if you look at our families... We have challenges. For example, the author identified that various industry research found that, get this, two of three families lack any type of emergency savings, 78% of families live paycheck to paycheck, and three in five of those do not maintain a monthly budget. And when they did a deeper dive, they found out that many families, for a host of cultural and social reasons, not just economics, do not talk about finance. And so there is a professor at George Washington University. Her name is Anna Marie Lustardi, and she's a professor of business. She's also the founder and academic director of the school's Global Financial Literacy Excellence Center. And she said, you know, students come to my class, they don't even know how credit cards work, and many of them have no idea how student loans work. So with the push to make October economic month, The goal is to make sure that A families have conversations about how to make decisions about money in their homes. Teachers can now invite business community leaders to share with their students decision making processes. And for those who are listening, if you want to go to CouncilForEconEd.org, you can actually find resources for K-12 education programs and others. I think this is important because For all the reasons we say but here's what i found really interesting so they actually conducted a survey and again this is the council for economic education and in 2020 they identified that 21 states require high school students to take a course in personal finance 25 states require high school students to take a course in economics five do not and only five states still do not include personal finance in their studies so given the fact that you and i share some states in common In Michigan, you'll be proud to know that of the six categories they have in place, everything from standards to implementation, Michigan has five of the six boxes checked.
0: Yes, Michigan. All right. My home
1: state of Virginia, we have four of the six boxes checked, and I'm glad of that. But for Massachusetts, the state that is home to this, uh, they actually have fewer than we would think for a state that leads so many things. So economics. Nobel Prize winner economics. We now have an economic education month. So we need to shout this up to the mountaintop. And in all seriousness, if we expect to maintain our way of living it's going to require people to be financially responsible with their money, but also with the government's money. So that is my story. What are your thoughts?
0: I love that story, Gerard. I think it's really, really important. And I think, too, you say that this is really everybody's problem. It's we. You might have preconceived notions about who knows how to handle their money and who doesn't. But the fact of the matter is, is that I think probably, this is my guessing, and maybe your article talks about this, I would assume that in this country, probably the people with the lowest incomes know more about what's coming in and what's going out than those who are in the middle class, able to be in some sort of debt, have credit cards, things like that. And that's where we as Americans are really undereducated. And quite frankly, it's sort of like a luxury to be able to be that irresponsible, but it gets us in in a lot of trouble. And just like you said, I did not grow up in a home where we talked about this. And I can remember going to college and being bombarded with credit card offers and just sort of thinking it was free money. (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't until I had to go to my parents and say, oh yeah, I have this bill. And they were like, what? <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't like they were going to pay for me either. I had to learn that hard lesson. It also, I'll share that as I've talked about before, my husband grew up in Argentina and this is a place where it's very uncommon for people to, for example, mortgage their homes. It's very uncommon wow. for people to have credit cards and credit card debt. So, you know, he'll just like student loans for him. He just looks at me sideways. He's like, how on earth do you have student loans of that size? And I'm like, well, you know, I went to school for a really long time. So I think that maybe it's not an American phenomenon, but it is a distinctly American trait, I think, to not know enough about like what you actually have and what you can actually buy. And let's face it, it's probably, there are so many statistics about the number one cause of stress is money. And, you know, people get divorced Mm -hmm. over money, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. This is a really important factor in educating our children to be not only, it's not just about math, which it is about math, right? But it's about being happy, healthy people. And so some of us, even if you were born into a higher economic class and you live higher up on the income ladder, that does not mean that folks are financially (laughs) responsible or literate, right? So, and I bet uh, probably a lot of people are nodding along at home as they listen to this. So I am all for it. I love that story. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. I'm going to take a hard turn and we're going to New York where you might have heard that Mayor Bill de Blasio, he has called an end, Gerard, to the city's gifted and talented program. So, you know, we've been reading a lot about specialized schools, magnet schools, exam schools, so on in places, many of them here in the Northeast where these things tend to exist. They're sort of like private schools for free in many regards, right? These exam admission schools. But de Blasio at the end of his term, you know, and his critics are saying, okay, you haven't really done anything about educational equity. And I'm not saying that now, maybe I am a little bit, but here you are, you're going to just issue an edict that says, this is the end to the city's gifted and talented program. And the idea here is that this g and program is inequitable. It is exam-based, so kids have to test into it and I think there is something, Gerard, to the argument that parents who are highly educated themselves, who know the system, know how to navigate the system, know how to help their children be successful on exams. Exam taking is a skill, let's be clear. I think there's something to that argument. I'm not necessarily convinced that we should abolish gifted and talented programs. I myself, Gerard, now don't be too surprised, but I was a gifted and talented child in the 80s. And I got to tell you, what I take away from that experience was it made me pretty unpopular. My peers and I, who were separated from the rest of the kids in a different like wing of the school, came home with some spitballs in our hair. I will say that. But on the upside, you know, we got a highly personalized education. And I think maybe part of de Blasio's argument is that every kid should have this education. This type of education should be on offer to every child, regardless of how you fare on an entrance exam. However, I have to say. I question the ability, given its track record, of New York City's public schools to deliver this kind of education to all kids, because that's what they're planning to do. He and his superintendent introduced a program that's going to replace the gifted and talented program called Brilliant NYC. It's accelerated learning for kids ages eight and up that will take place in their assigned classrooms so you can imagine being a teacher so teachers imagine being a teacher with what 30 kids in your classroom you've been a teacher i've been a teacher often what we know is that even the best teachers who can really differentiate instruction sometimes what you end up doing is teaching to the middle because you're trying so hard to make sure that everybody gets what they get and so there are a couple quotes in this article from teachers saying like as if it isn't already hard enough Now you're expecting us to come in and take kids who would have qualified for this other track, and we're going to have to differentiate for them, differentiate for children who are coming in at, what, four, five, six different levels in the name of equity. So I think that this is one to watch. They're saying, I don't know, but the article claims that there was not a Liz from the New York Post, by the way, so no fan of de Blasio, I think, but there wasn't a lot of parent input. And you can imagine which parents are upset and which parents don't care much. <laughs> so the parents of the kids who would have qualified for the GNT programs are indeed pretty upset. It's sort of like these struggles we're seeing over exam schools. I'm gonna watch this one, Gerard. I don't know exactly where I come down, except I don't really think that either way, that either camp has the perfect answer. And I'm always left with the question like, are we looking for a quality of outcomes here? Or are we looking for equitable opportunities? And, you know, I always fall in the camp of the latter. I think this is about creating equitable opportunities for all kids. And it's just too bad that we didn't see the mayor get closer to that, because I don't know that this does. What do you think?
1: I am a supporter of having separate programs for people who have the gifts and the talents to take advantage of. it. So you'll be surprised to know that I, too, was in gifted and talented
0: No surprise. Yes, sports,
1: not academics. And it's very (laughs) similar if you think about it. And so I had to be, I was tested in terms of how fast I could run a 40, how many times or how many, how much weights I could lift, pounds, could I tackle, could I move? And if you didn't do well, you didn't make the cut. So there was an examination that wasn't written. It was non-written. And if you were gifted and talented, you found yourself playing the skill level sports that you needed to. If we treated college football and the entrance into becoming a pro athlete, a Division I school the same way we did gifted and talented, the schools that currently make up the top 50 programs would look radically different. Why? Because taking someone who is gifted and talented, let's say, in STEM and someone who is gifted and talented in, let's say, the 40-yard dash And then putting them in very different settings where gifted and talented means something different to different people it will be a train wreck and so i'm all for the idea of looking at schools and saying wait a minute you don't have enough women or you don't have enough people of color or you don't have people from the right zip codes i get it but in the absence of gifted and talented programs how do these programs come into existence in the first place it's because the traditional school system did not have at certain schools, school levels or certain zip codes that program. Here in Virginia, we have the yep. Governor's School and we created Governor's Schools back in the 1970s in part so that the public school system said, you know what, we've got a group of students who are advanced and who should come together during the summer or in a year round program or other programs in order to provide them with what? Options, same thing we say about other programs. So. I think trying to abolish the program will never get you to equity. What it will do will be an equity of outrage, either from the parents whose school closed or for the children like me, who my parents will say, hey, let's put Gerard in this program. It would have been a disaster for me. They would have been upset. And then the parents, like my wife's parents, who would have would qualify for gifted and talented, they would have been equally upset. You took the class from her and you gave it to Gerard and Gerard can't handle it. So I just think this is just more unnecessary social engineering moving in the wrong direction. And in an environment now where families are already riled up, take families at Thomas Jefferson High School in Northern Virginia, top rated public school in the country where they removed an exam to get in in order to try to what I call color-code classrooms. Mm-hmm. it's not going over well. So I'm not a fan of abolishing it. If we want to deal with equity, and I agree with you, test taking is something you can learn as a skill. I also don't think that some of these tests are totally racially biased as much as culturally biased, given the fact you have people of color who are in them, and they're not just Asians. And not no, all Asians are going on them, just, programs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. there I am.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think we're probably pretty close to the same page. And, you know, something that you were teetering upon there is, here's an idea. Quit redlining kids in schools. <laughs> Make your public schools distinct from one another. Offer distinct things to the kids that need them. And let parents okay. have an option, right? And that's something that, yeah. of course, we don't think. De Blasio is going to go out with a bang. We will see if this program, this new What did I say it was called? The Brilliant Program, the Brilliant NYC. We'll see how brilliant it turns out to be, according to the parents of New York City. Some of them will flee for private schools, no doubt, if they can afford to, as has been the case. Mm -hmm. All right, Gerard. So we could probably ask our next guest to weigh in on this, but she's got so much cool research to talk about that. I don't know. We'll probably we'll want to change the subject because coming up right after this we are gonna be speaking with Robin Lake and she is director of the Center for Reinventing Public Education. I paused there because I just usually call it SERPY (laughs) and it's also the Center on Reinventing Public Education. But I just have a great deal of respect for Robin's work, for the work of her team and for what they do over there in Washington. So we will be back with Robin right after this musical interlude. Listeners, we're back with Robin Lake. She is the director of the Center on Reinventing Public Education, otherwise known as SERPI, a nonpartisan research and policy analysis organization developing transformative, evidence-based solutions for K-12 public education. Her research focuses on U.S. public school system reforms, including public school choice and charter schools, innovation and scale, portfolio management and effective state and local public oversight practices. Lake has authored numerous studies and provided expert testimony and technical assistance on charter schools, district charter collaborations and urban school reform. She co-authored with Paul Hill, Charter Schools and Accountability in Public Education, cited probably more times than I can count in my own dissertation on charter schools. And she's provided invited testimonies to the U.S. House of Representatives, Education and Labor Committee, as well as various state legislatures. Robin holds a BA in International Studies and an MPA in Education and Urban Policy from the University of Washington. Robin, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's such a pleasure.
2: It's great to be with you.
0: Yeah, we're really happy to have you here. And Gerard and I were just talking before you came on about um, Joshua Angrist winning the Nobel Prize in economics this week. And he, of course, has uh, done research on charter schools as well. It it felt like a good day (laughs) for education. (laughs) Yeah, it's so cool. We know a Nobel laureate. Super Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I was floored when I heard it on the on the radio Saturday morning. But well, we want to really focus on your work, because as I said, I have probably cited you and your work more times than I can count. But your title okay. is Director of the Center on Reinventing Public Education. And I will say as somebody who reads your work and uses your work that it's you are known for rigorous and balanced research, which which isn't always the case, no matter what discipline we're talking about. So can you describe the type of research that you do at SERP, And I'm really interested in how the work has evolved over time, because you've you've seen a lot of changes just in the past decade, I would assume.
2: <laughs> yes, we have. I'm an odd duck because I've been at the center for nearly 30 years, which is pretty crazy. But you I started with like five. Yeah, five years old. It was amazing. <laughs> um, learned how to read at the center. Now, I met Paul Hill, our founder, and Paul handed me a manuscript for um, a book he was writing called Reinventing Public Education. And the premise was really that Paul had been studying through the Rand Corporation, where he'd been previously effective schools, and especially schools that were effective in accelerating and meeting the needs of of all kids from all backgrounds. And, There was some emerging research during the 80s around what makes for effective schools, coherency, internal accountability, clarity about the the type of graduate, a distinctiveness, a sense of purpose, all those things, right, that anybody who's researched schools knows. But our question, Paul's question at the time was, okay, well, you can always point to some of those schools in a given community, but usually it's only one or two. How could we make it all What would it take? And Paul had been studying systems and policies for a long time and he was really acutely aware that there were those kinds of policies that got in the way that didn't allow those kinds of schools to scale and replicate. And so the purpose of the center was really, how do we reinvent those systems so all schools can be effective? and it took us immediately to questions around choice if schools are distinctive families need to choose among them autonomy staffing funding accountability how does that work if all schools have different purposes and then we started working toward this idea called portfolio systems which school systems that had a bunch of distinctive schools but really managed for equity and performance so it's been an amazing 20 30 years of, of working along those lines and You asked about how things have evolved. Well, a few years ago, about five, for our 25th anniversary, I had taken over as director of the center and I was thinking, the world has changed since the 80s, a (laughs) lot, you know, the future of work is changing. The need for school systems and schools to think about change and resiliency, Um, Really trying to figure out how to maximize the opportunities and pathways for individual kids and look outside the boundaries of the school building. Those were not things that we originally contemplated, but seemed really, really important for us to start thinking about deeply. So we, we started sketching out ideas along those lines for our 25th. And then boom, the pandemic hit, and all of the worries that we had had about rigidities and lack of ability to meet individual needs were just showcased right in front of us. So we tried to document a lot of that, and luckily we kind of jumped on some data and have been a pretty central resource for how how school systems are responding or not to different needs. And now we've got to turn back to, well, what does this all mean? Going forward, that's that's the work over the next five to ten years. How do we rebuild in a way that meets the promise of this generation of kids, but more importantly, meets the promise of the next generation? Not an easy question.
0: No, no. It's not an easy question at all. Now, so you mentioned the pandemic, and many, many of us relied on your work during the pandemic. So I wanna get there, but I wanna push really quickly on something that you said at the outset. And you said that you and Paul discussed how Oftentimes it wasn't, it was about reinventing systems because we sort of knew what works in schools or we have have a pretty good idea of what makes schools high performing, highly effective for kids, but that it's these structures and systems that get in the way. And so that sounds to me like the desired impact of education research is to reinvent those systems as you would put it, change those systems so that we've got equitable opportunities for kids and kids can find, families can find places that they will flourish. Within the public system, right? And that can involve all all different sorts of choice, which we talk about a lot here. But can you describe a time perhaps when you've really seen the impact of your research, right, in a positive way, an an outcome Mm -hmm.
2: that made you happy, that made you feel good? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, to your point, we have a little tagline that I think was Paul's originally that public education is a goal, not a particular set of institutions. And so we're happiest when we have had impact in terms of reframing a question so it can be addressed in a totally different way helping people challenge assumptions and, and say, why not? Why couldn't it be different? Why couldn't we do things radically differently? Does a school have to look this way? Or could it be uh, a set of opportunities within a community? That kind of thing. You know, to your, to your question on um, what's made me happiest, I would say that you know, if I had to point to one line of work that I've really dug into personally, it's been our work on special education. Started it a number of years ago with a focus on charter schooling. A lot of people were worried about special ed as a vulnerability for the charter school movement, which it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there were yeah. problems that had to be addressed. But we also saw it as a huge opportunity because we thought, well, special education is not working, it hasn't been working. Can we use this opportunity outside the boundaries of what has typically been done to to actually go for something better? And so for 10 or 15 years or so, we've been really trying to say, where are the bright lights within the charter school world, within the district world, in the private sector? How can we learn from that to try to construct something better? We've had a line of research going on that front for quite some time, and it continues and it's I think our most reor- rewarding work for me personally and it takes me right again to the core question that we, we've we been grappling with for the last five years or so. For our most complex kids we've got to think really differently and special education is a place where we see a lot of possibilities for um, honestly if you go into any particular school and you, you want to Learn about how do you you know kind of track what individual kids need and and what's possible for them. Go to the special ed teacher. She's got ideas. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: No, it's a really important line of research. And I think shining a light on and you, you at the outset, you said, especially, and we knew that there were problems in some charter schools, right? <laughs> and so shining a light on that and really talking about how to, how to tailor education to meet the needs of individual students, I think is informative for all systems. Okay. So you mentioned the pandemic and we, we of course, have a series of questions about this, because I have to, my first question is like, so you guys were, I think a lot of ed reform organizations were thinking, oh, somebody should really track the school closures. (laughs) Somebody should really think about like, what our districts doing? But it was a sort of a, not me, not me, not me. And then suddenly there it was, and you guys were doing it and you were doing, and I can only imagine the amount of work that it was, but can you describe to us what it was like to pivot that hard in that moment in March I guess, 2020, when it all sort of came crashing down and and like, how did you go about it? What did you learn from tracking school closures throughout the pandemic?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's been a wild ride <laughs> Well, I live here uh-huh. in Seattle and, you know, the pandemic was starting to Starts. emerge and I was looking around at, you know, talking to some local superintendents and thinking, oh my gosh, we had really, we were in for something really serious and we're not prepared at all. And, and so I remember thinking this, I'm going to have to kind of set everything aside. I'm going to have to shift our team. And I just went on pure instinct. I just had to trust my gut and kind of trust what I had learned over the past few decades about system response and system abilities and inabilities. And I'm, I'm also a warrior, so that probably helped. I thought this could go very, very badly, and <laughs> we were all at one you know, pulling information together. And as a researcher, it's t- it was a really tough moment, right, because there was not anything close to perfect information. What we did was we thought, well, where can we get something? Something's got to be better than nothing. And we thought, well, districts are posting information on their websites. Let's just start pulling that together. So we just quickly went after the, the largest hundred school districts and got organized to find that. And then we um, got a representative sample together quickly. And we just tried to be nimble and responsive. And I think one thing that really helped was the fact that we over the years, we've worked with a lot of practitioners. We had people we could call and say, you know, what's going on? What um, what are you seeing out there? And we also have a tradition of Serpy at trying to look around the corner, trying to be ahead of other folks in what might be coming, what questions. So that was the approach that we took was just, let's roll and let's connect with as many people as we can, figure out what's needed. And The the fundamental tenet that we followed was, let's be helpful. What can we do to be helpful and just use whatever, you know, skills and capacities we have to inform the field? So that's what we did. In terms of what we've found, I mean, there's so much. And it's easy to kind of get wrapped up in the masks and the vaccines and the issue of the moment. We've tried to stay really focused on teaching and learning throughout this thing. And on that front, it's not pretty. The, the kids are not all right <laughs> in so many ways. And in other ways, they've discovered so many important things as they've been out of traditional schooling. So, but on the not all right front, we've convened some consensus panels of experts to kind of assess where we are. I won't get into the details of that, but I think, you know, it's clear kids lost really, really critical learning opportunities and opportunities for gaining knowledge that if we don't act quickly, they won't recover and those individual kids will pay the price and our economy will pay the price. So there's that. The social emotional dynamics are of course so important. We've been tracking closely the mental health and other struggles and then finally, we've been looking at kind of the most vulnerable student populations and trying to understand what's going on with them. So, you know, it's uh, not a pretty picture. And so we're starting to think now about, okay, given all of that, we're, we're continuing to document it. And we'll be producing a report called the Profile of the American Student this winter, where we're hoping to kind of um, compile the story into something that's really understandable. But I think what's on so many of our minds right now is where do we go from here? Is this is just a question of catch-up, which is not particularly easy problem on its own? Or is it a much bigger problem of recovery, renewal towards something much better, which is you know the biggest challenge that any of us school reform folks have, have faced? So it's going to take all of us, it's going to take our best ideas, and it's going to take Collaboration, partnerships, and very, very strong will.
1: In July, your center published a report that found that most districts are so far spending money on quote what they know. What are districts doing to date and what would you like districts to think about when it comes to spending these funds?
2: Yeah, thanks, Gerard. Yeah, look, this was a, a massive cash dump on districts and I don't think anybody was particularly surprised that what they've been doing is spending on staffing, pay raises that they felt were overdue. Just talked to a reporter who had dug into some data and found that there were massive expenditures on on things like sports fields and things that probably were shovel ready. Right, districts had plans. Maybe somebody, a coach or somebody, had been lobbying for this thing for a long time, and uh, all of a sudden it was available. So. You know, that's all what it is. Not sustainable, right? And it's not the stuff that's going to um, get a kid who uh, has two more years to graduate and just lost six months of critical math time into the college of their choice. That's not going to cut it. What I advise districts to do is um, really get clear about priorities. And I'm not opposed to sports, right? <laughs> but, you know, let's get our ducks in order first and make sure that every kid is on the path to college and career readiness before we talk about some of those extras. Um, you know, I think three, three buckets maybe. First is good old evidence-based solutions. It's shocking to me how few districts are really pursuing intensive um, tutoring programs that you know, any researcher would agree is, is really the best thing you can do for catching kids up quickly. Rigorous curriculum, those kinds of just evidence-based solutions. A second bucket would be just, you know, creative approaches to catch up. We For a lot of people in the communities who have stepped up during the pandemic and and provided support to kids, let's not close them off from the current challenges. Let's actually bring them in, pay them for helping out with tutoring or um, partnering for mental health and social service support so the schools don't have to take that on. And the third bucket would be just making investments in the future getting toward that sense of resiliency and taking pandemic discoveries and figuring out what we can do with them reimagining the workforce these are the things that we're going to have to do and in three years when the money's gone we won't have the option any longer
1: before i pivot to my next question your the first part of your response reminded me you know when you're talking about you know paying for coaches and salaries I remember when the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of two, 2009 uh, was implemented, there were school systems that were doing the same thing. Some were even hiring teachers. They let go because of cuts. And within 24 months, some of those teachers had to be let go because the money they received was not permanent and there wasn't any planning. So hopefully we don't have a repeat of that.
2: You're absolutely right. History is about to repeat itself. And Remember, the folks who are going to be laid off first are the most junior folks, folks who have a lot of energy, ideas, and not necessarily the folks who are going to move the needle the fastest for the most kids. So there we have it.
1: Well, there you go. Let's talk about politics. Right now, education is very partisan, even within our reform movement, both public and private, very fractured. Your center, you know, of course, describes itself as a nonpartisan research uh, institution. By most accounts, we're living in a very high times of partisanship. How do you, as a leader of the center, basically walk the line in terms of talking about school curriculum, talking about research, and being able to do so in a way where the research is clear, it's nonpartisan, and is given in a way that people can say, yeah the center is just a straight shooter because a lot of people aren't doing that. How are you able to do so?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, I I do think we're probably um, pretty well respected by a a lot of different, more partisan oriented folks, policymakers tend to call us from all stripes, which we're really proud of. I'm really not sure why, you know, we're, um, we're people who like to, We like to be truth tellers. We like to surprise people. We like to be creative and unconventional. And, you know, we just try and stay focused on the question the question at hand and not get pulled into the noise of the the politics. Now, that also means that we make people on both sides angry. (laughs) And I've always felt like it's a little bit of a lonely position. But On the other hand, as long as they get over it and call us the next time, then I think we're doing our jobs. So, yeah, unfortunately, it is all too unusual. But I think, you know, what we we try to be a collection of people who think in the gray, who just don't Mm -hmm. like dichotomies. And uh, luckily, there seems to be still a little bit of space for that.
1: No, I'm glad to have you in the space because when your name is mentioned, I'm on the right in right circles, people are like, yeah, you know, good research. There are other names I could mention, and there are a lot of different responses other than good research. So continue the great work there. Well, speaking of research, Mm -hmm. this is my last question. As we emerge out of the time that we're in right now, should researchers and educators, what should they be thinking about? You know, we have a cadre of young scholars who are going to enter the field with a very different set of data points to look at than some of us let's say even 15 years ago. And we're gonna have 30 gubernatorial elections that are gonna come up. What are your recommendations to people who sit in academic academies and think tank research centers but also in state and federal government?
2: far be it for me to to really say what people should be doing I'll, I'll speak from my own experience what gives me energy ideas inspiration is really getting down to direct contact with students families and educators really listening to them observing And then trying to, from there, kind of get up to the policy implications. It just makes it all so real. And now I can't imagine a more important time than now to do that when students and families, educators were thrown into such craziness and have really, really important observations, discoveries, thoughts, reflections, they have things to say. Let's listen to them. So, the, some of the most rewarding research that we're doing right now is interviewing people who have participated in pandemic learning pods. Who you mm-hmm. know, just when they were out of the traditional system, what did they create? What did they you know discover? And. It's amazing to hear educators talk about their experience because they'll say, this is the reason I got into teaching this kind of Mm -hmm. relationship based, really, you know, customizing for kids, families saying, hey, I never realized that I really enjoy being really more deeply engaged in my kids education or kids saying, hey. It's really cool to be able to control my own schedule and say, what well, I want to study and then have people work around that and give me something that excites me. So there's just so much rich soup there, so much rich, rich soup and so much to contemplate about the systems that we've built and, and kind of ask ourselves why. And then it's, serious. it's also equally important to to listen about, you know, how how should we be defining success as we move forward and how would we know that we're getting there i don't think we've grappled with that kind of question so i don't know if that's helpful that's where my head is shame on us if we don't take this moment to reflect you know
1: i like that word because when we often discuss education we think of r which is resources and that's important another R is results but yeah let's just take time to reflect You know, when I heard you say that teachers, you know, were excited about what they were doing and said, this is, in fact, is why I I entered the profession. And Kara had an earlier question for you, but also in your background, you work in charters. Minnesota and California were the first two states with a charter law. And both of those laws were created in part to give educators a chance to practice uh, their craft, their profession in unique ways. And So we can come out of this either crying or crying from excitement. And so hopefully it's the (laughs) latter.
2: Yeah, I love that. I love that.
1: So, Robin, again, thank you so much for joining uh, Karen and I today to talk shop about the work you're doing. And as always, I learn something when I hear from you and when I read your work. So our listeners, I'm pretty sure, are going to be excited to see uh, what you come up with next.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, it, it was a really fun conversation. And I will say that the Pioneer Institute I I ran into when I was visiting Massachusetts, and there were 12 charter school laws based uh, back in, I don't know, 1992 or something. So Mm -hmm. y'all have been on my radar for a very long time and really respect your work.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much, Robin. All right, Gerard, we're going to close it out with the tweet of the week. This one from the 74. And the tweet is, I was just talking with somebody about this this morning. It's pretty exciting. Researchers at Harvard Center for Education Policy Research at NWEA and the Calder Center will partner with a consortium of districts across the United States to provide timely information about tutoring, after-school programs, and other interventions. Timely, yes. I love that they're going to do this. This is These are some real heavy hitters here in the area of educational research. So figuring out by having this consortium of districts come together, whether or not these tutoring programs, interventions, m- many of which I'm sure will be funded with relief money if districts would actually decide to do that, maybe some of them have, um, if they're actually working. And I think this goes back to, conversations that we've been having with some of our guests Gerard, around whether or not how we're going to know if we're getting any bang for our buck out of all of the stimulus money. So I think it's a great effort. We will keep an eye on it. Maybe we'll even get somebody to come talk to us about it, the learning curve. But That's all I got this week, my friend. Next week, Gerard, we are gonna be back with David Reynolds. He is a distinguished professor of English and history at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and biographer of Abe Lincoln. His biography of Abraham Lincoln was selected as one of the top 10 books of the year by the Wall Street Journal. So Gerard, until then, I hope you have a wonderful week. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you.
1: I enjoyed the way that we use economy of scales To get down on time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.